You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Last time on Voices for Justice, we explored Alyssa's early development and learned that she was seen by a doctor who concluded that Alyssa had most likely been sexually abused. We discovered another sexual assault allegation against our father and ended with the convenient timing of our mother's death that resulted in our father receiving a large life insurance settlement. From the day our mother died to the day Alyssa was gone was exactly 3,000 days. In this episode, we are going to start digging deep into some of these days and the circumstances leading up to Alyssa's disappearance. Despite reports of our father spending more money than usual while our mother was dying, after she passed, he told our mother's family that he didn't have enough money for a large funeral or to bury her body. So a small ceremony was held two days after her death for our father and us kids, and our mother's family paid for her body to be transported and buried in Kansas. But as life does, it went on. Our father was ready to find his next wife and began having an affair with another married woman. This time, it was Alyssa's third-grade teacher, Diane Boardman. I'm not sure exactly when they started dating, but by July, only five months after our mother's death, she began appearing in home videos, and our father even introduced her to his mother. But Alyssa and I weren't upset. We were craving a mother figure. Mrs. Boardman became very close to the family and helped take care of me and Alyssa. She bought us clothes, took us to get haircuts, helped with homework, and with the recent death of our mother, we were quick to love her. In her interview with police, Mrs. Boardman said that when she was dating our father, he was a good man who tried his best to be a good father and community member. But as so many have reported before, Mrs. Boardman said he was often paranoid of the police and the electrical union he used to be a member of, and he filed lawsuits often. And then, the police ask Mrs. Boardman about our father's relationship with Alyssa. And the report states, Diane told me she never saw Mike physically strike or abuse Alyssa. He would talk sternly to her and attempt to use logic when she acted up. Diane said that he did treat Sarah differently. She said he seemed closer to Sarah and was more physically affectionate with her. I asked Diane if she ever saw anything inappropriate between Alyssa and Mike. Diane said he seemed like a good father. She then paused and said she did remember one time when she was at the house alone with Alyssa when she said, quote, I'm having sex with my dad, end quote. She said Alyssa was just walking past her when she said this. Diane attributed this statement to Alyssa acting out and being jealous of her relationship with Mike. 
I asked Diane if she found it unusual that a child would say this. She said she had never had a child tell her such a thing. This incident was never reported to Child Protective Services and only told to the police after Alyssa was gone. But my father talks about this story. In fact, he told ABC 2020 in 2009 it was his favorite memory of Alyssa. This entire conversation wasn't aired on the episode, but I have the transcript. And the host asks, And your favorite story of her? And our father replies, Oh, there's a lot of them. Some are cute, some are tragic. I don't know. When she was nine years old one time, this is shortly after her mother died, she, uh, some of the neighbors came in and said, Alyssa's telling everybody she had sex. And I said, are you kidding me? So I said, what are you talking to these people like this for, Alyssa? And she says, well, Dad, don't you have sex when a boy kisses you and sticks his tongue in your mouth? No, honey, that's not sex. You're not going to get pregnant. But with Alyssa, you had to have known her to understand. She was, what do you call it? Naive. She was very naive to many things. Didn't comprehend the repercussions of what she did. Our father literally laughs in this interview like it's a cute story. But the truth is, Alyssa was becoming a problem for our father, and he talked about it. In a phone call with his brother-in-law, my father states he had a talk with Alyssa and said, quote, If you keep pumping information out of here on assumptions, repeating some bullshit somebody else said or something else, if you keep talking about everybody, about what goes on in this house, none of which is that, that bad, you know it gets blown out of proportion to the point where our family is constantly being attacked, Alyssa. Then you are gone. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I've had enough. I mean, surely you can remember to keep your goddamn mouth shut. That ain't a difficult one to remember. And he makes another phone call, this time to Mrs. Boardman. I'm going to read directly from the transcript of this call. Our father states, Just please be patient with me today. I'm just, you know, I don't know what's bugging me. Maybe it's all this other stuff too, but it's just, oh man, I'm a jerk today. I really am. Took Alyssa, took her bags of ice to school, took them there for her and everything like that, and then she had forgotten her valentines. So she tells me, she says, Would you get my valentines for me, Dad? And I said, Alyssa, I gotta think about it. I don't know. I'm just so sick of this stuff, you know? Leaving her, forgetting her homework, all that crap, and everything, you know. I just never had anybody that tries so hard to not help. I mean, even Rhett. He was never this obnoxious about it. Obnoxious or whatever her problem is, I just need to, just this morning, I, I just snapped. When I saw it there, last night when I saw the homework just sitting there, in the book and everything, something inside of me just went, you know, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I wasting my time with this kid? And Mrs. Boardman interjects and says, well, you're trying. And our father goes on to say, this kid just don't give a shit. It doesn't give a shit. It never did. That's what probably the crux of this entire thing is. Just exactly what Barbara said. Barbara said it herself. She has a family full of people who would just as soon do it themselves. Just go ahead and do it and worry about the consequences later. That's just exactly the way Alyssa is, right to the T. I mean, she doesn't miss one, one bit or note of that. And she's been that way all her life. I don't think it has anything to do with the ADDs. It's just that she doesn't give a shit. 
One way or another, she doesn't care. She'll do whatever's the best thing for her, and the rest she doesn't care. I think it's the way she's going to be all of her life. She's going to be just like her aunt. Someone who, somebody that somebody will have great sex with, and just go from person to person. And she brings kids in, treats them like shit, and they'll grow up to be criminals. Should probably have her spayed. How's that for a disgusting thought? I'm sorry, that's really gross to say about your own daughter. But I'm just, you know... And Mrs. Boardman interjects and says, She's not giving you anything to work with. I mean, you've tried. And our father goes on to say, Don't worry about the rest of this garbage. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm just, I'm just frustrated over it, Diane. At the bottom of this transcript, there's a note from the detective who reviewed this phone call. And it says, quote, It should be noted that Alyssa would be nine years old at the time of this conversation. It should also be noted that Michael Roy Turney refers to Alyssa as an it and says she should be spayed. He makes a statement that she gives really good sex. Things wouldn't work out with Mrs. Boardman, and soon enough, she broke up with our father and went back to her husband. And after this, our father never brought another woman into our home again. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak, but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash justice. ZocDoc dot com slash justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When I was growing up, my brothers always told me that when my mother died, our father broke that this is when he really went from being their Superman to someone they could barely recognize. In 2009, one of my brothers even told ABC 2020 this. The man that I grew up with, um, 
this isn't him. I, did, I don't know who this person is now. But I think this big change in our father happened after our mother passed. Although, yes, of course, I believe that our mother's death greatly affected our father. I think it was a combination of her death and losing a battle to win Mrs. Borman from her husband, along with the realization that if he brings another woman into our home, he's running the risk of Alyssa confiding in her that she was having sex with her dad. And maybe this next time, this new woman would tell authorities and he wouldn't be so lucky. I think it was at this time that he realized that in order to keep his secrets, he could never bring another woman around his children again. So he didn't. And he had to face the realization that he would never have the family that he had always dreamt of. He even got so upset about this breakup that he wrote a series of suicide notes, one specifically for my brother Mike, with some very clear instructions. Quote, This document is titled Mike List. It's apparently a directive authored by Mike Turney to his son Michael Seth Turney about his last wishes. In the document, Mike specifies what he wants done with his body and his desire to have Alyssa and Sarah cared for by Mike, John, or James. There are 14 directives in this list. The last one reads, I have one video with a letter to Scott Boardman. Please give it to him as is. And then the police add a note, and it says, quote, It should be noted that Scott Boardman is the husband of Diane Boardman, who Mike was having an affair with after Barbara Turney's death. It is unknown if the video refers to the video of bondage sex with Diane Boardman located in Mike's bedroom during the search warrant. Obviously, our father wasn't too happy about this breakup, and it only sparked more anger against Alyssa. Like we discussed in the last episode, Alyssa was always treated differently, and it only got worse as we got older. But that's something I can only see now. It was so confusing when I was younger, because in one breath... Our father gave us very strict rules about not calling each other step or half-siblings. It was drilled into us that we were a family. I even found a clip of Alyssa talking about this very thing. I'm relaxing. Yeah, this is Sarah your only baby. Who? Sarah. No, John's my baby, so are you. Mm-mm. Yeah, you're always our babies. No, but they do have. What? That you have. No, honey. Who's all your baby that you have? James and Mike. You? Not me. You mean actual baby, honey, that was... Yeah. Like for me? No, honey. Just James and Mike and Rhett. And Sarah. And Sarah. But all three of you, John... So, so, they're, so they're, they're, they're not stepbrothers. They're not stepbrothers and sisters. Honey, we don't have any stepchildren in my family. But then again, he was lashing out at Alyssa more so than any of the other kids. At this time... I thought it was because she was so rebellious. But looking back, I know that wasn't the case. Listen to this clip from her 11th birthday, for example. We sing Alyssa happy birthday, and I lean in and blow out her candles. Although I should have been the one being corrected, I sit there smiling and get rewarded with cake and ice cream while her father lashes out at Alyssa, and she breaks down crying about how she's always in trouble. Instead of being a brat, no. I need to get Lissa. I need a candle. Or to be just spend one more of her birthdays in the corner. 
You ready? Go in the corner there. Go. Go on, sit there. Let's just make it a big birthday. Go sit in the corner now with your smart mouth. Come on. I've had enough. Go! And you always throw a fit. Every birthday party we get involved in. And you And it's not a major event. Oh, yes, it is, because you always get thrown away. I was still pretty young at this time, and generally oblivious to the world. It's hard to know exactly how Alyssa felt, so I reached out to one of her oldest friends, Janae. Janae grew up just a few blocks over. She was even at that birthday party. Here's Janae, and what she remembers about Alyssa, her relationship with our father, and the abuse. She was such a vivacious outgoing, outspoken person. She was amazing. Yeah. And I mean, your sister was a hard ass. She was like, she would tell it like it is no matter what. And she, I mean, she had an attitude. She was a firecracker. Yeah. She definitely was. But she was like so sweet. Like she was so, such a hard ass and told it like it was, but then like was the first person to like defend somebody who was being bullied and, and stuff like that. Very, very a compassionate person. Yeah. Like if you were her friend or even if you weren't her friend and she saw you being bullied or, well, and she kind of was a bully in her own ways and when we were a little, <laughs> I mean. Peeing in a cup and making people drink it. You, you know. know. <laughs> some poop on the floor it's your breakfast yeah. you know <laughs> like <laughs> but it's like silly kid stuff I feel like it's never it was never anything detrimental that people would like hate her for today no no I there's not a reason in the world that I could think of anybody wanting to hate Alyssa besides your dad yeah no he definitely definitely hated her <laughs> and well I mean yeah we'll get to that I mean it's the next thing on my list here is you know what is your memory of Alyssa's relationship with my dad? Uh, it was definitely always strained, I guess, is the way that I... It was awkward. It was not a normal father-daughter relationship ever. Uh, he was very overprotective of her. He was very strict on her. Um, he was... He talked down to her a lot. Like, yeah. um, like it was like he felt like she was beneath him. But then... You know, I always knew that he wasn't hers. Right. So. Did she talk about that? Yes. Because she would never talk to yes. me about that kind of stuff. So yes. I'm, I'm super interested to hear. And a lot of the times, like, when they would fight, um, she would say things like, um, I wish that I could go be with my dad. Or oh. I, 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 I want to be anywhere but here. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And it's hard because I didn't, you know, I didn't see that side. And, and yeah. she sheltered you from a lot of that. I think she probably took a brunt end of the abuse so that you would never have to experience it. Yeah. That was her ultimate goal, I feel like, was to make sure that you, she took it all from him so oh. that you didn't have to. That's so hard. That's so hard. Like, because I mean, we, we fought, we fought all the time. I mean, I'm, you probably saw it. Like, oh, we yeah. We were so mean well, to each other. You were. And she... I mean, I, I know when we were really young, like she resented you a lot for your relationship with your dad yeah. and like, cause he, he treated you two polar opposite and she saw it and she felt it and she hated that. And she resented you for it because your kids, right? When right. you're, when you're yeah. 10 and your, your little sister gets everything and you get nothing, 
you feel some type of way about it. Oh, absolutely. No. And I felt, I also felt resentment towards her and this, we would always fight about it because I was like, you get all the attention from dad. Cause I was such a daddy's girl. I wanted all the attention, but he let me do whatever I wanted and didn't care if I was out all night. Yeah. And so that hurt me. And I wanted him to be more, more like he was with Alyssa with me, which is crazy now. <laughs> Insane now. Yes. But as a kid, I was like, I want that. Like, why don't you care about if I'm going to school? You know what I mean? Um, but I think he he might have purposely created it that way so that we would fight. Yes. He, I, I think he liked it when you fought because he could always then punish Alyssa mm-hmm. and you would get rewarded. Right. Like he would, I, I, he would buy you whatever you wanted. Yeah. But if Alyssa like needed something. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, she had to list reasons why and you know? Yeah, no, it's so hard. As we got older, there were definitely red flags. Um, but there was nothing that I could do about it as a 11 or 12 year old girl. Right. And I think maybe my mom was in a way scared of your dad or scared of what he might do. Sure. If she was to, because I, I, I would imagine that her and my dad probably had conversations about how they were going to get Alyssa out of there. You think? I think so. Yeah. I would imagine so. Because my mom my mom wanted to protect Alyssa. Uh, my mom was adamant about protecting Alyssa. Uh, I know that after we realized that Alyssa was gone and uh, like – I know that when like the 2020 thing came out and um, a lot of attention was being brought to her case, my mom, you know, reflected on a lot of those things and wish she would have done things differently for sure. Um, We all did. Oh yeah. But I mean, there's nothing, my mom probably could have done something. I feel like my mom could have, but she was probably scared of what Mike would have done to us or me if she would have said something about the abuse that was going on over there. Yeah. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. There's a lot of people that feel that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, you were mentioning earlier that your mom would almost like not let her go home. Yeah. My, I remember my mom and Mike getting into arguments over the phone and you know, no, she's going to stay one more night. No, I'm going to keep her for the week. I'll bring her back on Sunday. And right. you know, he would be like, well, she needs to do that. No, she doesn't. Good for your mom. Good for your mom. She's staying here. Um, I've got her. I'll take care of her. And what kind of things did Alyssa say that would make her react that way? Um, That that he was touching her and doing inappropriate things with her. That's so hard. Yeah. That's insane. And I mean, I know she told Miss Boardman too. Yeah. Um, And I mean, you said the police have never talked to you. Is that right? No, I don't. I've never talked to the police about Alyssa. And never your mom? No. I, No. Looking for a fresh start, our father took a new job in the electrical field in Montana. Once again, he left his sons to care for the family home in Phoenix, and he moved me, Alyssa, and John to a new city. But it wouldn't last long. After a few months, our father claims that a man on the job site tried to kill him by knocking him off the roof of a building that they were working on with a ladder. But the man failed, and supposedly shattered our father's leg with the ladder instead. He filed for disability and never worked again. But when I got older, I realized that our father never even had a cast on his leg or walked with crutches. And as a condition of his disability, he would begin seeing a psychiatrist multiple times a week. Of course, now I know that the shattered leg story was another lie. 
he filed for disability for psychiatric reasons, mostly due to post-traumatic stress from the paranoia of the union and the death of his wife. His psychiatric evaluations around this time state that for these reasons, he was unable to hold down a job. I have several psychiatric evaluations of my father, but I am by no means a professional in this vertical. And to be honest, he was known to lie to and manipulate his psychiatrists. So I doubt the validity of any of those results. But at this point, there was no doubt that he was suffering from depression, paranoia, and extremely disturbing thoughts, to say the least. And now, with so much free time, it only got worse. I actually found a letter where my father outlines how he felt at this time, and he also talks about a very disturbing reoccurring dream he was having. This letter is dated December 28, 1995. He begins by writing, I survived another day. My mind is such a strange thing. It is as though it belongs to someone else. I'm beginning to feel that I am separating from it. Each time I do seem to withdraw more and more. I don't even like to leave my room. It is the only place I feel secure. I have prayed to God, but each time I start thinking about how wonderful it would be to be with him. The dreams are endless. The dreams about the big black guy in the warehouse, the man molesting my children, and I can't stop it, but have to watch. The new ones are about me being in a cage, and I'm being poked and hit by a person that changes from man to woman. I am bleeding, and my guts are falling out with a lot of pain, but no one will help me, and I can't wake myself up. In addition to this letter, it was around this time that my father makes a call to his ex-wife's younger sister that we learned about in episode two, the one he admitted to handcuffing to the bed and sexually assaulting while he was supposedly sleepwalking. He says he's depressed and lonely, and he remembers her nightgown from the night he handcuffed her to that bed. And then he segues into talking about Alyssa, who's only 12 at this point, and he expresses concern over her being promiscuous and attracting all the neighborhood boys. And then he segues again into talking about bondage, and he asks her if she would be into that, and she ends the conversation. I want to share another piece of writing by our father that I think is relevant to the story. It's not addressed to anyone in particular, but clearly directed at someone. It's titled, There's Honor in Suicide. And I think it gives us an insightful look into how my father really felt about himself and the world at this time. It reads, You have finally convinced me that there are bad people everywhere. That this world is filled with liars, thieves, and endless corruption. You are living proof that they will continue to flourish. That there isn't a right and wrong, but only gray areas. I have never seen the world as black and white. I have tried my best not to judge others who were too weak to stand up for right and wrong in a world filled with technicalities created by lying lawyers and idiots who idolize them. The clone has risen and now rules this planet at the whim of any group buying their collective stupidity. They childishly give the power to these corrupt, dishonest few then complain like children when they are caught, but do nothing but practice their clonism. It's most important for them to make sure that they do whatever they are told and never question the clone leader. People think I'm sick. It is you that has that honor. All things must come to an end. This great civilization is led by men who became wealthy from the death and suffering of people too clonish to question their behavior. 
I know you'll all have to combine your weak minds to understand what I have written. In short, I prefer the unknown to accepting things you clones do as normal. It has always amazed me how frightened people get after they fuck someone else over and spend endless time worrying that that person will try to get even. That is your world and not mine. There is nothing to get even for. After I have left this physical body, I will be the winner. I will no longer feel the pain in my knee, my stomach, or the permanent scars in my mind for the behavior you have all displayed. You can just put it out of the mind you hide in your physical body. We will meet again after your body stops functioning. I will anticipate hearing your attempts to explain your actions in this world and of the next world. I do not believe the sin for six and confess for one will fly. Attempts to rationalize away not standing up for right over wrong is your human weakness. I have lived my physical life in the shadow of a kind God, not some organized cult man calls religion. Money is all that matters in this world. It means little to me. I needed it to do the things I have done. To stay around my children will only influence them to think like me. I do not wish to see them suffer for daring to think differently in a world of clones. There is no need for me to try to reason with a world of clones. So in the words that you taught me, fuck you. I think it's safe to say that my father was angry and definitely thought he was the smartest man in the room, if not the world. But he says in this writing that he has nothing to get even for. But in another note, from before Alyssa was gone, my father goes into great detail about his plan for revenge against the electrical union that he was a part of. And this one's long and convoluted, so I'm just going to read the end. Whoever reads this will know my pathetic story. Whoever is affected by what I have done will feel my pain or know what it feels like to lose a loved one or have their memory taken away from you when their last memories are tarnished with disgusting insults just for the sake of unionism or campaign finance money from organized labor organizations for they will have shared my pain. They will go on feeling what I had to live with since 1993, almost daily and every day and night since 1995 every time they think of the innocent loved one they lost. I do not believe that God is asking me to do this horrible thing. I do not believe it is the devil. But the only way to bring an end to what has happened to me, or an end to the dishonor that Vanderlyn and the other IBEW members brought to the memory of my wife before and after she died. I can't go on thinking about committing suicide every day of my life. I can't just let all of this go without bringing attention. I have tried all legal avenues and media coverage. No one would listen. No one cares. Many now they will, in memory of their deceased one who died because of the federal government cover-up of what was done to me and my family since 1993. They were sacrificed, just as the memory of my wife was for campaign finance money, as was my job and my reputation which was all I had left as a human being and a man. The loss of personal property has meant little to me because of my loss of self-worth in 1993. I will finally be at peace. There will be no more nightmares, worries, or responsibilities. If there is a God, I pray God will forgive me, for he is the only one that would know the whole truth of what has been going on in my mind for all of these years. Goodbye.
and it's signed Michael R. Turney. And at the bottom, we find another note from the detective who read this, and it says, quote, It should be noted that this note insinuates that Mike Turney planned some sort of suicidal act against the IBEW, including mass fatalities. Although I don't think anyone in the family understood or anticipated our father's violent plans, his threats of suicide were not a secret in the family, but more of a burden passed from older sibling to younger as the years went on. He talked about it openly. In one home video, you can even hear him mention it while Alyssa and I are literally in the same room. I can tell you that right now. I said, if kids weren't here, I would be right with Barbara. And as things tend to do in this story, it only got worse. On April 5th, 1996, just two days after Alyssa's 12th birthday, our Aunt Teresa made a call to Child Protective Services, or CPS for short. The report reads, Father Michael reportedly abuses prescription drugs and drinks alcohol daily, which makes him sleep most of the day slash night. Michael has written at least two suicide notes and is depressed. Teresa was told that the home was a mess and that there was no food in the home for the children to eat. The family is in the process of being evicted because the father is too proud to apply for food stamps. Mother died of cancer a few years ago. 18-year-old John lives in the home currently, but will be moving out. Teresa is concerned about the children once John leaves. Like we've seen in some of the other reports, this has a note from the detective at the bottom, and it says, It should be noted that no allegations of sexual abuse are made in this complaint. But in various phone conversations, Mike Turney characterizes this complaint as alleging he, quote, beat up and raped Alyssa. Included in these papers are numerous letters Michael Turney wrote in response to these allegations. He complains about Teresa and says that she was sexually abused as a child and currently uses drugs. And among other things, Mike Turney also files a false reporting police report with the City of Phoenix Police Department. And again, despite there being no actual allegations of sexual abuse in this report, our father says that there were, and he even places the blame on Alyssa's biological father, stating that he raped Alyssa at a young age. These preemptive mentions of abuse are common in this story and will be important to remember for the future. In addition to writing letters to the attorney general, county attorney, city of Phoenix manager, child protective services, the governor, in the Civil Rights Department of the FBI, my father also made various phone calls about these allegations against him, and it's pretty apparent that he's scared. First, he calls his now ex-girlfriend, Mrs. Boardman. The police report about these specific phone calls reads, In this conversation, Mike talks to Diane about a complaint filed to CPS by Teresa. Mike says that he's very worried and upset about CPS becoming involved with his family. Diane said that she spoke to Alyssa, and told her that it was important to keep things that happened in her house private and not to tell people. This seems to be a reference to Alyssa saying, quote, I'm having sex with my dad. Mike says that he's worried about something happening to himself and how Sarah would deal with being in a foster home. Mike says, Alyssa has said things in the past, not realizing what kind of repercussions that can happen over that. He also says, it's a concern of mine. I didn't want to have to fight for my freedom because an overly exuberant state agency and a young child didn't realize what it was saying. 
it's pretty frightening. My stomach has rolled over about 15 times. This kind of stuff puts me in sheer terror. The next recorded call is to Child Protective Services. Mike leaves a message. He wants to know whether the case is unfounded. Mike then places a call to the Attorney General's office about his concern about someone using CPS to abuse him and his family. And in a second call to the Attorney General's office, Mike mentions that Alyssa was raped when she was two and a half and that this was done by her father, not him. In another conversation between Mike Turney and his neighbor, Mike states that his son, John Turney, is very violent towards Alyssa and that he has hit her with a bat. He says that Alyssa is scared shitless of John. He also mentions that someone called CPS and said that he beat up and raped Alyssa. I can say with absolute certainty that neither Alyssa or I were ever afraid of any of our brothers. In addition to this statement about John, our father states that our brother only made these allegations to Teresa in order to blackmail him into buying him a motorcycle. And as he does, our father takes it a step further and has John sign a contract that he actually has notarized. There are 19 points in this contract, and I'm going to read them all for you. 1. I have lived with Michael Turney since the age of 7. 2. Michael Turney adopted me and my sister Alyssa Turney. 3. Michael Turney has raised Alyssa and I as his own children, treating us the same as his other three children. 4. Mike Turney has insisted that we don't use the phrases half-sister or half-brother. 5. Michael Turney has neither been physically or mentally abusive to myself, nor have I seen him being so to either of my sisters. 6. Michael Turney has not neglected me or any of my sisters or brothers that I am aware of. 7. Michael Turney has maintained a smoking, alcohol, and drug abuse-free home since the death of my mother. 8. I have not witnessed any sexual abuse of my sisters. 9. Michael Turney did give me the money to buy my present vehicle as my graduation vehicle, as he has all three of my older brothers. 10. Michael Turney has been my dad for these many years, and although we do disagree on things, now that I'm a man, he has always treated me fairly. 11. I contacted my natural father and my Aunt Lynette in April of this year because I needed money. My dad was having financial problems due to a work-related injury. 12. At no time have I seen my two sisters go without having food or the necessary clothing. 13. My dad told me he was going to let our house go back to the bank because he wanted to move, and we all agreed. 14. I have seen my dad sick on a number of days. 15. He always made sure that one of us was watching the girls or he hired a babysitter on the days that he was sick. 16. I have never seen my dad drunk. 17. I have seen he and my mother drink an occasional wine cooler. 18. He has constantly counseled me and my sisters about not smoking, using illegal drugs, or abusing alcoholic beverages. 19. Although our home has been messy many times due to my sisters, my dad has ensured that the house never remained that way or become filthy. And it's signed, John Allen Turney. I don't have an explanation for why my father included everything he did in this contract with my brother. 
And although I highly doubt that this could be used in any formal legal situation, the intention of covering his tracks is pretty clear here. I'd also like to point out the statement he makes about giving John money for a vehicle. My father will do this several times throughout this story, but he appears to poke a hole in his own story here. In one breath, he says John is making these things up so he'll buy him a motorcycle. And in the next, he makes him sign with a notary present that he was given money to buy a vehicle. This contract is just the first of many we will explore in this episode. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. By the time this Child Protective Services report was made, our four older brothers were already moved out of the house or on their way out, so it became just me, Alyssa, and our father. There were good times and bad. By this point, they fought, but similar to the way they always did. He was constantly redirecting Alyssa, but it wasn't as intense as it would later get. On the other hand, It's pretty apparent that there were a lot of things going on in the home that I didn't comprehend, even when they were told directly to me. While going through some home videos, I found a clip from about a year after the CPS report. Alyssa, my father, and I were camping. I grab the camera and start recording myself, and my father instructs me to turn the camera off, but I don't listen. the red button. What? Hit the red button now. I don't want to. I don't record. Hit the red button. Yeah. Unicorn. Yeah. Yeah. Dad's a pervert. Yes, sir, give me the camera now. <laughs> and you're still recording. And Lisa is stupid moron. Alyssa's a stupid moron. 
Whether I was oblivious, traumatized, or both, I don't know. But I didn't see it, and I have no memory of her making this statement. But given what we know thus far, I think it's safe to say it was a cry for help. Our father was obviously upset by what she said, and he scrambles to discredit her by calling her a stupid moron. So at this point in the story, a doctor has concluded that Alyssa had scarring in her vagina, Alyssa told at least three adults that she was being touched by or having sex with her father, and she just told her little sister that their father is a pervert. In addition to all of this, our father made our brother John sign a contract stating that Alyssa was never sexually abused. At this point, I think it's safe to say that between these facts and my father's very suspicious behavior around these conversations— that my father was most likely sexually abusing Alyssa from an early age. And it seems that our brother John may have been suspicious of this also. The police found a four-page letter written by our father to John from September of 1997. The letter begins with a dispute over $25, and then our father berates John for his involvement in the CPS call and for John not being with our mother while she was dying, despite John only being 15 at that time. And then he asked John not to come back to the house for a while. And then it gets really cryptic. And our father writes, quote, I'm asking you to stop questioning Alyssa. She becomes confused when you do. But our father didn't keep everyone away from Alyssa. And it was about this time that our cousin David came to live with us for a few months. Our father called him and said that Alyssa was out of control and he needed help. He told David Alyssa was so out of control that he even had to tie her to a chair at one point. Well, it, there were some, a lot of hints that were coming when I came to stay with you guys, you know, when he, he was telling me, uh, you know, he gave me, he told me what he had to do with Alyssa, you know, uh, about tying her up one time. And, and I, he, I mean, he just came out of the blue just telling me, you know, like, why would you tell me that? You know, I mean, and I think he was doing that just in case Alyssa was going to put it out to me. But according to several of Alyssa's friends, she wasn't violent or out of control when this happened. In fact, she woke up that way. In a police interview, one of her friends states, She had been sleeping and she woke up tied to a chair and gagged. And when David was alone with Alyssa, she tells him about a similar but separate disturbing incident. I remember picking her up and she was trying to tell me a story about how crazy your dad was. Okay, and um, and I remember, you know, I I didn't really want to get involved with it because your dad had just told me the story about, you know, how he had to handcuff her to a chair. He didn't say he handcuffed her to the bed, which I believe he handcuffed her to the bed story. I do believe that story. But um, but he told me that he had handcuffed her to the chair because she was so out of control, you know. Um, and, but she was trying to tell me a story that he had, uh, handcuffed her to the bed. And I was, you know, I kind of stopped her, you know, uh, headed her off to the store. I said, look, I, your dad kind of told me what happened. And I, I, you know, because well, that's really, you know, effed up to David, don't you think? And I said, yeah, it is. I wouldn't do that to my children. No, you know, no, I wouldn't, you know, you know, what parent would, you know, I'm not a sane parent. You know, I mean, that's, that's insane. You know, I mean, to do that to a child, it's, no, you know. Um, that is insane, yeah. Real, 
yeah, I mean, it's, unless there was something really seriously mentally going, you know, uh, the child was trying to hurt themselves, maybe, you know, but uh, again, no, you know, but anyway, uh, you know, so she was trying to tell me that I think she was trying to maybe uh, open up and saying, hey, you know, my dad's doing some sick stuff and, and uh, you know, because she was trying to open up and I was, you know, there for maybe a couple of weeks. You know, and, you know, your sister was kind of open up a little bit to me, you know, because I'm still, you know, I'm an adult, you know, she saw how close I was to your dad. And, you know, she didn't know how to trust me. And I ain't saying I could have been, well, she knew the enemy, you know, so. <laughs> and I wouldn't blame her, you know, because I would have thought the same thing, you know, if I was in her shoes. So, you know, uh, but anyway, you know, but, you know, but I started getting to trust a little bit. And, you know, and, uh, you know, and I just told her, you know, so look, you know, I'm not going to, you know, and I never told, you know, you know, like if she confided in anything, I never went to Tulsa on anything, you know, because I didn't believe in doing that kind of crap, you know, but she never really confided in anything else and anything other than just trying to tell me that story. But I wish I would have shut my mouth and just let her go on and tell me, you know, what happened to her. But it didn't matter because I saw the evidence myself. And you're probably asking... What evidence was David talking about seeing for himself? Well, David says he found something while living in our home. Something so shocking that after finding it, he moved out immediately and never spoke to our father, his once beloved uncle, again. Next time on Voices for Justice. Yeah, do you want to tell that story about finding the videotape? Yeah, it was really weird because, uh... What was just odd about her rules is just the restrictions that she had on who she could be around, you know, the ways that she could communicate with them privately. And so we get to your house, and I can see the little red light in the vent in the living room, and I was like, is that fucking real? Is that a camera? She's like, yeah, he records everything. And I'm like, that's fucking creepy. The chances of you actually getting anywhere with that, especially with your dad who can talk his way out of anything, is minimal. Dad picked her up early from school one day, driving around. Uh, I think the store was pulled over somewhere in you know, an unoccupied area, some like desert area. Voices for Justice is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Sarah Turney. If you want to learn more about Alyssa's story and how you can help with the case, visit justiceforalyssa.com. And if you love the show, it would really help if you gave me a rating and review in your podcast player. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you next time.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.